So both of you agree? Okay. Ah, we have a few technical difficulties, but we'll get going here, and I'll try to go fast. Now, December the 18th, we will be back on December the 18th. We will have our our pause as we do every year in the end of December and first week of January. Really fast now. That we I just mentioned earlier on the other video that we started and deleted that we found the uh, footprint of a Tyrannosaurus rex in Alaska, which means that Alaska was a temperate zone. It was a jungle. Uh, it was very much, my, I'm sure, like any jungle, Amazon, uh, what may exist in Africa. So we had reptilian forces here, and they all, of course, died out by some means. And I would predict to you that that was Genesis 7. In any event, if, if the evolutionists decide that the earth is a young earth, that the, it is a 6,000-year-old earth, then God is obvious. It ends the debate. So I expect, I've been saying for most of my so-called career that I expect that to happen. Okay, moving fast. December 4th, 2022, lecture discussion number 187 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 15. And I'm starting with a letter. I get real letters, not just email stuff, which we can't prove is real, but this is actual tangible physical evidence. It goes this way. It's from Wendy in Texas. Uh, she says, Dear Cliffside, the highlight of my day was talking to Stephen today. So she did call me and I talked to her on the phone. That and buying a dancing Snoopy Christmas dog that plays a trombone. I find that it is a need, not a want, to have a dancing Snoopy trombone dog. I hope you can all find one for yourself there there in Alaska. I got mine at the home store, which I'm unsure if it's up there. I, I, I will play with mine and think of you all and Stephen on his trumpet, which really is not quite a trombone. I'm thankful for that. No, I'm thankful for you all. Okay, so apparently I've achieved, achieved equality uh, with a trombone playing dancing Snoopy dog, no way. Which that's only took me 69.66 years. So that's pretty impressive. I'm very, very excited. What should you do when you find out that you're equal to a dancing trombone player playing Snoopy dog doll? Well, there's only one thing you can do. You've got to have one. If I, this is equal, if this is what I am, I'm going to embrace it. Now, can you beat that? Now, I have a, I have a dancing trumpet guy, but this is pretty cool. <laughs> so I wanted to thank Wendy for the letter and for the inspiration to go get my very own. So now I have one to remind myself that I am the same as that. And that is cool. Okay, so where are we now? Uh, we're going to begin today with the algebraic... Will we begin today with the algebraic proof of Bell's inequality? Because I thought about doing that. It's very impressive stuff to know, and I, I wish I could do it. Uh, and I wanted to couple that with the time dilation derivation. But uh, I thought, no, I don't have really much time to do that today. So... Uh, do, do we need to know this kind of stuff? I, I really do believe we do. I think the church has failed here. I think the church has conceded uh, mathematics and physics uh, to the evolutionary processes or the evolutionary philosophy. So, not, so we're not going to do it today. Today's just a warning. We're going to start with Niels Bohr, the great uh, Copenhagen physicist. And he has two quotes that I, I would have framed and prominently displayed in every church alongside of Max Planck's uh, statement that consciousness is the essential, it's the fundamental component of physical reality. 
I would put these on the walls of every church I could ever get to, and, and I think they should be there. Bohr said this, those who are not shocked when exposed to quantum theory cannot possibly have understood it. And the second one that he says is, stop telling God what to do with his dice, which is a reference to Einstein. Bohr and Einstein were combatants uh, for quite some time. And, and he's, he's re- addressing the famous Einstein uh, lamenting remark that Einstein ultimately uh, is quite well known for. And I, I bring <coughs> these quotes to the discussion in which we are mired in which is the Calvinistic superdeterminism and the Arminianistic temporal salvation, because they most certainly belong. What Neil Bort said and Max Planck said, like I said, are, they're very, very important very, statements, and, and very few in the theology world or the, in the Christendom or whatever you want to call what we are today, Laodicea, very few know why Bohr and Einstein and uh, Max Planck have such an impact on theology. Einstein to the negative and Planck and Bohr to the positive, along with John Bell, as you might remember from all the stuff we've done. And before we uh, wade back into that muck, deep into that muck, hopefully you've already connected Niels Bohr's admonitions to the uh, adherents that are of Calvin, hyper-Calvinism and Armenianism. He says, let me repeat the thing for you. Those who are not shocked when exposed to quantum theory cannot possibly have understood it. Now, that is a theological statement. I hope I can explain why. I should ask, add uh, Richard Feynman's, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand it. Feynman was uh, calling for humidity, humility, and so was Niels Bohr. Something not, I think it's absent uh, amongst uh, the most ardent Rhetoricians, the rhetorical element of the church who aggressively argue their side, be it either the deterministic or the transitory position, I don't see a great deal of humility. They are positive that they have it right. Both sides are. And here is quantum physics and Niels Bohr saying, if you think you understand it, you're wrong. You don't really understand it. You should be shocked. You should be shocked by quantum physics. Well, I'm going to make that obviously theological. What should you be shocked by? The Word of God. Approach it with humility. Allow me to transport, transpose Niels Bohr a little bit. Stop telling God how he has designed his plan of salvation. Stop. You don't understand it. Quit saying that you do. Quit pretending that you do. To paraphrase again, if you are not stunned by the complexity of his design of salvation, you cannot possibly understand it. If you think you understand the plan of salvation, you don't understand it. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you, James 4.10. Quit thumping tables and screaming and yelling about something you don't understand, pretending that you do. The mantra of the quantum physics community is nobody comprehends quantum mechanics. That's much to their combined credit. They all say it. And thus the obvious logical question, which do you suppose is the most intractable, the unmanageable? Quantum physics or the solution to sin? Which is the more difficult problem? Enigma. Labyrinth, labyrinthine nut. Not, sorry. 
How complicated is this design of the salvation? It's ridiculous. And nobody understands. And all who say they do understand are oblivious, delusional, or intentionally such. They know they don't understand it and they're pretending they do, which is a worst case scenario. So throw chairs and run from their lecterns. Get out of there. As an aside, but nonetheless uh, correspondent to this debate, is the fact, the fact. Did I say fact? I hope I said fact. Have I said fact yet? The consciousness cannot be explained by mathematics. Need to know that. Consciousness is non-computable. I made that statement a few weeks ago. You can't mathematically, it does not compute. There's nothing about mathematics that can explain consciousness. So if you can't solve the the mind-brain problem and you can't solve quantum physics, what makes you think that you can solve the solution to sin? It is insanity. It's certainly arrogant. How about time? Time, life, life. Ah, sorry. Now I got to get my water. I'm getting the frustration I have with this is probably coming through, huh? Time, like likewise, is derivational. It, it has its source also in consciousness. Consciousness is where mathematics comes from and where time comes from. Those are two concepts. Now you have to begin to explain both of them. Good luck. Therefore, Genesis 1, 16 through 18 has this great sign in it. What is that sign? It's the time there. Time that rules over the day and the night, the sun and the moon, the beginning of the clock with respect to the physical reality. How then is time this great sign from God? Why is time a great sign from God? What is it and why is it is the two important questions. What does this have to do with superdeterminism, total inability, the so-called illusion of free will? But it does. Do you know what time, how time impacts superdeterminism? How many times do you hear a superdeterminist say to you, well, what about time? How many times have you, how many times? Who says to the superdeterminist, what about the great sign that is time? Okay, I'm ranting, aren't I? We should endeavor to persevere here. Today will be mostly in the previous framework of the other lectures that I've done recently. And that the aim, oops, we have problems? No? You're moving around, that's scary. Clock or something ringing a bell? It's possible the Snoopy trombone dancing dog thing interrupted your system? Is the possibility. There are no zero probabilities. Okay. Where was I? Who knows where I was? Previous lectures, I've got this framework. And it's, it's, and my framework is that my intent, my aim is to locate scriptures and concepts in scripture that are generally neglected in this debate. That's been the plan from the beginning when we began this. If at least, if not intentionally expunged, because some of these are so difficult for both sides to deal with, they just cast them aside and pretend they don't exist. So they they they're expunged due to their shared characteristics of being problematic to both premises. And something I propose we should expect. 
to repeat. Nobody gets this. Nobody understands. 1 Timothy 3.16 Nobody, no one ever has resolved the mystery of godliness. What makes you think that if you can't, res- you can't resolve the mystery of godliness, you cannot resolve the solution to sin, that you can resolve anything? Our role is not to be Arguing, our role is to believe. Now, that's the problem is, is that they don't have any understanding of where belief becomes important. They think that their particular perspective is more important. So, we're going to continue to do all all of the same framework system that we've done, that I've tried to do in the last few sec- lectures. In addition, we're, we're going to venture into Romans 8:29 and John 17:12 again. Romans 8.29 is pretty much ubiquitous to this discussion. I'm going to couple it with 17.12 of John. Let's see how we do. I'm going to make the point that Romans 8.29 and John 17.12 are are like this. And and there are those who are convinced that Romans 8.29 is already correctly understood. But nobody knows again. And I keep repeating that. We are incomplete beings. We don't have all the information. If you think you understand something, you've proven something, you've solved something, you are in violation of Google's incompleteness theorem. For those of you out there who are unfamiliar with Romans 8.29, it's commonly utilized by the extreme predestinational advocates as their centerpiece of their argument. If you begin to pull this apart, there are great difficulties. Me thinks it does not mean what they think it means. As is always the case, it's required that we approach all verses with that we think are difficult with the absolute fact, the absolute truth that God is never not Psalm 36, 5 through 7. So you get a description of God in Psalm 36, 5 through 7, and he is never not that. And perhaps you've noticed, if you've been listening, how often I refer to, I reference Psalm 36, 5 through 7. If you conclude that a verse or passages violates Psalm 36, 5 through 7, if you have that opinion, then you are in error because he never violates Psalm 36, 5 through 7. Try again. Romans 8, 29 is another of a bevy of verses that are interpreted in a matter that is in contravention of Psalm 36, 5 through 7. What am I saying? They will read Romans uh, 8.29. I forgot the S. Correct myself. And the, it, they will come up with a conclusion of it that is absolutely opposed to Psalm 36, 5 through 7. The description of who God is, his character, his, his intellect, his capability. His goodness, his loving kindness. And I suspect that they come up with these kinds of positions because of the human predisposition to confirm a present bias or a preset bias. They're going to clutch onto one's emotionally conceived precept and they're going to cling to it. That's the normal, usual normal response when I run into these kinds of things. And they're going to, they're going to cling and they're going to fight everything, any and all incoming imp- oppositional information, testimonial data. If I can produce data that says your position is wrong, 
Why, why not consider that? But they don't. These are cemented positions on both sides. Where they share one thing in common, that both of them are wrong. Resolving 829 of Romans from those who cling mightily to their interpretation is going to be difficult because I'm not going to convince anybody. I'm just going to give you information. I hope some of you will listen. Maybe none of you will. Probably none of you will. You have your position and you're loyal to it. It doesn't matter what the evidence is or the testimonials otherwise would say. It's going to be impossible. No, it's not. But it's going to be... Uh, it. it it's been called a fool's errand before in, in the uh, theological ranks because you just can't move anybody. And I've learned over the duration of my so-called career that people love being wrong. They just love it, and they're not going to let go of their wrong. Prying their wrong from their cold, dead fingers is all you got. That's, you, that's all that there is. And, and that's Romans 8.29. That's Hebrews 6, 1 through 6. That's Hebrews 10, 19 through 31. Let's get those on here. Let me make sure I get it right. 1931, yeah. Hebrews 6. 1 through 5 or so. So these are verses that, again, they almost seem like they're a futile endeavor to bring them up. Is generally uh, they just are not received when you put a, a view that is not the same as what they want it to be, and I'm about to put up views of those two these passages that are not the same as what they want it to be. And again, uh, I, this is a, I, I've endeavored to persevere here, but my my record is not so good. Okay, what does Romans 8:29 say? Whenever you get a question like that, what should you do? When somebody says, what does Romans 8.29 say, what should you do? Should you read Romans 8.29? The answer is no. You shouldn't read Romans 8.29. What should you read instead? You should read Romans 8.28. Just in case Romans 8.28 is impacting Romans 8.29, what do you think is the possibility? So what does Romans 8.29 say? Well, let's again start at Romans 8.28. That's how we're going to do it. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, are called according to His purpose. What's the key word there? Come on, give it to me. Is it love God? Yeah, that's important. But what is really the subject? The subject is His purpose. Let me read it again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What's the obvious question? We'll keep going. For whom He foreknew. What? Let me say it a different way. Let me back up. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God. Let's stop right there. What's the central element of loving God? I made that comment last time we were together. We believe Him. That's the. If you don't believe Him, loving Him is not going to happen. You have to believe Him first. I think belief is before love. Everybody wants to love. Everybody wants to cry. Everybody wants to throw themselves on the ground and sing songs and all that stuff. But do you believe Him? 
John 21, 15 through 17, John 11, 25, Genesis 15, 6, Galatians 3, 2 through 9. Believing God. He likes that. That's not what, that's a terrible way of putting it. Romans 8, 29 says, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let me repeat that. To those who are called according to his purpose. What's the subject of the sentence? What's the important element of that sentence? Love God according to his purpose. Easy, obvious question. What is the purpose of God? (laughs) Better easy question. Who is the purpose of God? Now comes verse 829. Now you can read verse 829. Do you suppose that the purpose of God will be the context, it will be the focus of Romans 829? Well, that's that's just, huh, huh, duh. Of course it will be. 829 is going to talk about the purpose of God. If you respond with, yes, yelling and screaming affirmative, then congratulations, you should applaud yourself vigorously, commendation, the cookies, skittles are coming. But be aware that there, there are these on these on Romans 8.29. You can't move them because they do not believe that the purpose of God is being referenced. They believe something else. And they shout no. When I say, do you believe in, that the purpose of God is, is going to impact 8.29? We, I answer yes. They shout no. And they, by they, I mean them and those who superglue themselves to super deterministic concepts. This, again, might be the bouquet in the middle of the table of superdeterminism. And I'm going to say, tell, tell you that their interpretation of Romans 8.29 is man-centered. It is not God-centric. It is human-centric. As a matter of factual accuracy, predestined systems are a man-centered or man-centric theology. Oh, that's going to get some incoming. How is it so? How is it that it is a man-centric system? I'm going to eventually deal with this. Some might suggest that I'll pontificate on it. And if I, if I pontificate, I've always wondered, does that make me the pontiff? Only I had friends that could tell me that, whether or not that's the case. For, t- for today, I just want you to notice that if you think that this verse, 829, is about human beings and not the purpose of God, then I, you've got difficulty because, again, that's man-centric. Just today, just I don't have time really to go into it, but uh, just today note that the, uh, the exclusive, ex- exclusivity of predestination. I'm predestined, you're not. I'm saved. You can never be saved. It's impossible for you to be saved. That's exclusivity. What does God say, Romans 2.11? There is no partiality with God. We have this tenet. It's called monergism. Or monergism. Sorry. I always get the G in the wrong place. So it fits in here. And that, that is a position that says that God must first regenerate before he can save. Let me repeat that. You have to be regenerated before you can save. So and this extends to infants. He will regenerate and as, as an infant. 
So he will regenerate that infant so that infant can be saved, but he will not regenerate this infant and that infant can never be saved. Uh, consider that kind of thing. Does that fit with Romans, I'm sorry, with Psalm 36, 5 through 7? It does not. Let me, let me just give you something that's a problem with monergism. 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 Sorry, I can't get it right. I have to write it down, I guess. It's a time-based structure. Rut row. He has to first regenerate, then he can. He can save. That's time. That's a problem. Why is the fact that you you put a, that your regeneration before salvation is a time-based system? Is God inside of time? He is not. Is man inside of time? He is. So monergism is monergism. If I got that, gism is a time-based and therefore a human-based structure. Anyway, the created thing perspective or concern frame of observation is not to be considered. You have to teach yourself not to consider the human perspective or the man the man frame of reference. You have to, especially when the purpose of God is the immediate circumferential. Try to think like him. He does not think like us. And being a fake cardiologist, I know the, uh, the electrophysiology meaning of circumferential, having had the procedure. It's not much fun. Raises your heart rate for years. For me, it was two years before my heart went back together. But I'm digressing, huh? I'm going to present this soon, soon being a relative term for... Uh, the, I have to, I think. It's for those that deny angelic human and human will. Angelic animal and human will. And so it's it's part of the, it's a crucial part. Do not set aside the design of God for a human-based structure. That's a fatal flaw. That's what's happening in, in Romans 8.29. Okay? So now let's go back to Romans 8.29. I'm going to leave out a word. For he foreknew. And if you're following along, hopefully you're saying, uh-oh, you left out a word, which I did tell you that I was going to leave out a word. I'll do it again. For he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's 829. Now, I'm, I took a word out of there, blanked it. So, the HTRP left out a word. People, the Protestants are protesting. And again, why did I do it? I did it on purpose. What word did I leave out? Why did I omit this word? What do you presume that God, the Elohim, the YHVH foreknew? It says, for blank, he foreknew. What did he foreknew? If you calculate that he foreknew his purpose, his design, the lamb slain before time, Revelation 13, 8, then you have got the right answer. That's what he foreknew. His purpose. What's his purpose? It's the lamb slain before time, Revelation 13, 8. It's the solution to sin. It is the great mystery of 1 Timothy 3.16. The mystery of godliness. That's his purpose. His purpose is not what? Predestination. How can you beat that to fit in here? Again, the predestinationist does not agree. They're screaming at me. They're really mad. He, see, he, she, them, they, those are convinced that God, the Holy Spirit, discards the purpose of God from 828 to instead target their beloved predestination. 
Is that even logical? And so really, do you think? And they do. The Greek word that I intentionally passed over is O-U-S. Oath. That's the Greek word that I got rid of. What's it mean? The meanings are which, whom, that, who, some, whomsoever, of whom, of some others. Those are the King James translations of that Greek word. And hopefully you see the problem. Choose the one that's correct. The old King James chose whom. Oh, and that just lights them up. That's the pick that the... uh, Just guess the one that the super determinist wants. And if you guessed whom, that's the one they want. And I must be fair. The King James has selected whom at Romans 8.29. And that's discouraging to me. I submit that it's not accurate. Whom shifts the meaning away from the purpose of God to humanity, and that means it cannot be accurate. Now, you know that I favor the King James. I do. I don't read it very often because of its difficulty to be understood by some people in the modern history or the modern contemporary church, and I'm trying to get through to as many people as possible. So far, I think that's been what, three, maybe eight? I favor the King James, and to the credit, the King James, they chose correctly at John 17.4. Same word. They got it right at 17.4. Which word would you have selected for connectivity to Romans 8.28? And I revealed the answer in the question because HTRP, right? Which word would you elect that goes here between four and he four new. John seventeen four and seventeen six, if you remember, are the companions to John seventeen twelve. And John seventeen twelve is this great mystery of God speaking in the framework that is Elohim, the us. Genesis one twenty six, three twenty two, Deuteronomy six four, the triune Godhead. Jesus God says aloud. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those those that you gave me, I kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, which you know is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's what Christ says there at 17.12. And 17.4 and 17.6 help you understand what's going on in 17.12, just like 8.28 helps you understand what's happening in Romans 8.29. Why does Jesus God, and he's identified as Jesus God, Acts 2.32, why does he speak aloud here? What's he doing? He doesn't need to speak aloud, so he's speaking aloud. He has a reason for speaking aloud. What is the reason? Note Matthew 26.39, Matthew 26.42. Obviously, he's intending for mankind to know the Elohim has a glorious, unfathomable, unfathomable, can't say unfathomable, design that is about to be judicially enjoined. He's saying it aloud because this is how he's communicating to us. Did you catch my overt emphasis as I read John 17, 12? Just consider the incredible secrets that Christ discloses here. The omnipotent, omnipotent, timeless God says, while I was with them, when he was with them, where was he? 
he has the ability, being the one who in, who installed time, he's the timeless God. He was with them inside of time. While I was with them inside of time, you could say it that way, I kept them. What's he mean? Kept them from what? From whom? Matthew 6.13. That's part of the Lord's Prayer, right? The evil one? Why does God, why does Christ keep them? He keeps them in thy name, he says, right? What does all that mean? The primary Hebrew names of God are YHVH, Elohim, and Adonai. And there are many others that are compounded with YHVH and Elohim. So you get a whole bunch of names of God. But the three primary ones, YHVH, Elohim, Adonai. With that said, John at 17, 1 through 19, there's this conversation that's within the triune Godhead, that's within the Elohim. John 17, 1 begins the exchange with Jesus saying, Father, the hour is come. He's saying this alive, alive, aloud. Why is he saying this aloud? He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. Proverbs 34 and John 3.13 are to be placed side by side with John 17.1 through 5. Proverbs 34, as you know, what is the name of the son? Well, we know the name of the son now. What is the name of the son? The name of the son is salvation. The son's name is salvation, Luke 1.31. He says, I have lost none except the son of perdition, so the scripture might be fulfilled. What's the obvious question? What scripture is getting fulfilled by the losing of the son of perdition? And I need to advocate here again for the King James. In my most humbler of, of the humble opinion that I have, the King James is correct. The son of perdition is lost. He lost the son of perdition. It's a great mystery here. Other translations just bail out and will say perish or gone to destruction. But I think those that you gave me, I have kept. Let me repeat that. Those that you gave me, I have kept. Who gave him these? And what are the these that he's talking about? Who are the them there? Those whom you gave me, I have kept while I was with them. I kept them. I have kept is the Greek Kenotion here, Kenotion, connoting. The Greek connotes keeping. And if you keep something, then what's the opposite of that? Not keeping, not kept, not guarded, not watched over, John 17.11. John 17.11 also supports the keep, the kept, and the lost that the King James has given us, and I believe that that one is the most correct. Anyway, what scripture was fulfilled by the son of perdition being lost? I submit that it is, and I have before, that it is Genesis 3.15, the prophecy of the defeat of, the, of Satan and his seed, the crushing of the head of the, of the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3.12 are absolutely entangled with John 17.12. Genesis 3.12, and the woman said, I'm sorry, and Adam said, the woman whom you gave to me, to be with me. So God gave the woman to Adam. He gave the apostles or the disciples, the twelve, to Christ. So you see this relationship now beginning to show up again. Adam is the first Adam and Christ is the last or the second Adam. Adam is declared by Scripture as a type of Christ. Romans 5.14 
And Adam said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Adam was given the responsibility of the woman and she was lost. The second Adam, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45, did not lose. None that were given to him were lost except the son of perdition. Obvious question. I can't see the time. I'm doing pretty good. Obvious question. Did the father give to the last Adam the son of perdition? As he says, those whom you have given me, I have kept. And he's talking to the father. So did the father give to Christ, did he give Christ the son of perdition, which would be Judas? If the son of perdition was given to Christ by the father, what's the implications of that? There are implications here. Do they affect the impact the predestinational position? Oh, yes, they do. How do they do that? Christ lost Judas. What is the losing process? Have you heard me say that over the last few weeks? How, do I, how does God lose somebody? What's the only method by which God could lose somebody? Is there anywhere else in Scripture where the shepherd king loses somebody close to him? Well, yeah, that would be David, shepherd king, king of Israel, a man after the the same heart as God. And that would be Absalom, his son. Absalom was seeking to kill King David. He raises an army. Second King fifteen or seven, Second Samuel fifteen eleven through thirteen. It says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. David is forced to flee. To escape, Second Samuel 15. No one in Israel was more praised for their beauty than Absalom, Second Samuel 14:25. David ascends the Mount of Olives and he weeps there, and he's, he covers his head and he's barefoot, Second Samuel 15:30, Acts 1, 9 through 12. Ultimately, Absalom, riding a mule, is caught hanging. I, I, you would say cursed. He's caught in a tree. Hanging in a tree is cursed. And he is splaying, splaying, he is slain by three spears through his heart, Second Samuel 18, 10 through 16. He is dead hanging in a tree. That's Matthew 27, 5 and Acts 1, 18 through 20. What have I, who have I compared Absalom to? Judas. Son of perdition. And King David was deeply, this is a type of Christ. Not, a, not enunciated in scripture like Adam and Moses, but nonetheless, a shepherd king slays the Goliath. King David was deeply saddened, incredibly great weeping. He's mourning for his son Absalom. He did not want him killed. Joab killed him anyway. Three spears through the heart. Why three spears? What's the typology here? What's the other meaning? There's always other meaning in the Bible. It moves all over the place. Good luck. Obviously, Absalom typified Judas and also David to Christ, which means what about Christ with respect to Judas? Let's say that again. Deeply saddened. Christ must have wept for Judas. Why does Christ weep for Judas? What does it prove when Christ weeps for Judas? I lost Judas, he says. 
Did he cast him out? Did he ban him? No. He lost him. The only obvious answer to that, I believe, is Judas has will. And therefore, Satan has will. They will tell you that Satan, of course, everything about Satan is predestined. He's a robot. You'll see that constantly. Now we've got to apply this to John 17, 12, John 13, 26 through 27. John 13, 26 through 27, if you remember, and you probably don't, it's the sop of honor given to Judas. Christ gives the sop of honor to Judas. Matthew 26, 36 through 38, Matthew 26, 47 through 48, we see the deep grieving of Christ. We see the kiss from Judas. And I've always said that that was a kiss of farewell. I'm leaving you. You have lost me. The point is, yea, a point. Judas and Absalom are entangled. There's that word again. We therefore can gain a lot of information about the eighth mystery. That's the mystery of iniquity. Second Thessalonians 2, 7 through 9. That's the man of sin. That's the revealing of the wicked one, the evil, the lie. Romans 1, 25. Second Thessalonians 2, 11. If you decide, if you decided to include the son of perdition, again, Second Thessalonians 2, 3, into those who were to be kept by Jesus in the Father's name, because Judas Iscariot is one of the twelve, and it says he gave the twelve to Christ. So he's got to be included in there. Right? It's all this basic math. Got to have twelve. And those twelve were given to Christ by the Father. And it was kept by Christ in the Father's name, except for Judas. Those whom were given by the Father to the Son. Then, then the obvious questions start explaining detonating here. Boom, shaka, laka, laka. One of the given twelve was the son of perdition. He was the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 Why is he among the twelve? Why did the father give Judas the seed of the serpent to Christ to keep? Did omniscient in the name of, of the father did omniscient Christ God know that Judas was the lie, the wicked, the antichrist? Once again, I answered the question in the question. Omniscience means that he knew. How do we reconcile Luke 6, 12 through 16 with John 17, 11 and 12? And while we're at it, Matthew 26, 39 re-entered the room again. It's everywhere. That's the cup. That cup is really important. Genesis 15 ties to that, that cup. Matthew 26, 39, as you know, has this mystery of Genesis 15, the smoking furnace and the flaming light passing through the division. It's attached. It's attaching to the cup. Very complicated material. Matthew 26, 38 says of Christ, his soul was exceedingly sorrowful when he has that cup in his hand. What could make God exceedingly sorrowful? What could do it? We conclude, we conclude there that exceedingly sorrowful means he's weeping, he's grieving, even unto death, it says. Jesus says he's very, very heavy, Matthew 26, 38. Why this great sadness when he when he's, has the cup in his hand? And what's the answer? Yea, an answer. 
because of the cup, Jesus Christ falls on his face saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible. Wow. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will or thou will. Possible? If it's possible, how do you reconcile that? So Christ, Jesus God, has a will. We just learned that. Let, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will or thou will. He has a will, duh. And the Father God has a will, equal duh. What is Christ's will as to the drinking of the cup? And what is the Father's will? Are they colliding? Are they in contrast? Is this Second Peter 3, 9, confronting Ecclesiastes 12, 14, Hebrews 9, 27? Revelation 20, 11 through 15, that's the great white throne. That is the judgment of Ecclesiastes. That's after death, that's judgment. This comes judgment. Matthew, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9, 27. Is this Genesis 18, 16 through 33? That's Abraham in the, Abraham interceding over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Is this number 1746 through 50? That's Aaron running into the middle of the plague with the censer, stopping the plague. How does all of that harmonize and comport with absolute predestination? Another easy answer. It doesn't. Predestination is an abject opposition to those passages that I just rattled off and many, many more. Okay, what does Luke 6, 12 through 16 have to do with John 17, 11 through 12? Luke 6, 12, 16 describes Jesus Christ. Remember, the, those whom you have given me, I kept. Not my will, but your will. So this is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, John 1, 1 through 4, the creator of all things, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. It says this, As it came to pass in those days, he, Christ, went out on a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. The Greek word for God here is theos, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Elohim. So again, I have triune Godhead. So what do you suppose Christ was discussing with the triune Godhead of which Jesus is the second person? Well, the text just happens to inform us. And when it was day, so he prays all night. So he spent the whole night praying to he, the Father, the Holy Spirit are in communion the whole night. And when it was day, he called his disciples and he did something with them. What did he do? Now remember, these are the ones that God gave to him. I'm sorry, the Father gave to the Son, and the Son kept. And when it was day, he called his disciples, and he chose twelve. What did he do? He chose. Christ chose. He also named, he, he, he named them apostles. And, and perhaps you didn't hear me. He chose twelve. Oh my. Jesus God chose his apostles, his twelve. One of his choices was Judas Iscariot. That's one of his choices. Why does he choose Judas Iscariot? You have to ask yourself, what is he doing? 
the Father gave to Jesus and Jesus chose. Is this a contradiction? No, it's not. It reflects the will of the Godhead, the three that are the whole, the us, the Elohim. Obviously, Judas was chosen. I suspect much of the conversation with the Godhead concerned this choice, the son of perdition being chosen, the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, being chosen to be one of the twelve. Why would he do it? What's he trying to do? What's his name? What's the name of Christ? Luke one thirty one, Salvation. What's his purpose? Salvation. He's doing his purpose. 8.29 Romans. We'll get into that more so as we get going down the road here in a couple more weeks. Remember, none of them are lost, again, except the son of perdition. How does this work? When did Christ lose the son of perdition? I gave you some hints already. That, of course, is a time question, isn't it? Because he says, essentially, when I was with them, that means he is inside of time and outside of time simultaneously. He's, he's able to do that because he's the one who conceived time and installed it. So whenever you have a time question, automatically it's a tread very carefully situation. Don't run in there. What's the, what's the Elvis Presley song, right? Fools rush in here. Quit. Why would God's word, God's scripture, inform us that the Father gave and the Son chose? What are they saying to this? Both are true, so how is this so? What else is true? How about God's omniscience and free will? Just saying it's the same as God giving and Christ choosing. The Father giving and the Son choosing. God giving and God choosing. That's the better way to put it. Okay, to complete, to continue repeating the crucial question here. Who is responsible for the failure of Judas? Is it the will of the Father or the will of Christ? Is it either one of those? Because it's going to be one of them if that's your position. And if you have a predestinational position, then which one did you choose? The will of the Father or the will of Christ? Which one of them caused the losing of, of Judas? Could it be the will of Judas? Again, why was Judas... If, did God fail here? I give them to you and you choose. Is that failure? Because you lost Judas. Why was Judas chosen? Who else knew that Judas was chosen? Who else is part of this that you never think of, but you ought to think of it because he's always part of these kinds of things. When Judas was chosen, who went, oh, that's interesting. I'll tell you who it was. It was Satan. What was Satan thinking? He knew. Satan knew why Judas was was given and he knew why he was chosen. How did he know that? We almost end today with introducing the impossible of Hebrews six four, which was clearly which clearly connects. Now I'm going to go back to eight twenty nine. For we know that all things work together for the good of, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for which he foreknew. Now there you go. He foreknew what? Your predestination? No. He foreknew what? His purpose. When did he foreknew his purpose? Before he put time. Revelation 13.8. Before time. Before the foundations of the earth. Time being a foundation. 
Okay, we have this, we've got to introduce the impossible of uh, Hebrews 6.4, which clearly connects to the possible of Matthew 26.38-39, where Christ says, is it possible to let this cup pass? Well, now we have the impossible of Hebrews 6.4, and we've got the impossibles of Hebrews 6.18 and Luke 18.27. Nothing with God is impossible. But yet I've got impossibles. I've got possibles. If I've got possibes, I've got impossible. Theologians have long been aware of uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and there are five dangers in the book of Hebrews. How am I doing? Am I still good? Paul is directing these five dangers to somebody when he writes the book of Hebrews. Who's he writing the book of Hebrews to? That's got to be the easiest question on any test. He's writing the book of Hebrews to Hebrews. He's directing the five dangers. He lists five dangers and he's directing them to the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians that are receiving this letter. And what are they doing? They're contemplating returning to Jerusalem and re-entering Jewish society. And it's pharisaical society. In effect, they're returning, returning to Judaism. That is the context of the book of Hebrews. He's sending five warnings, five admonitions Five dangers to these folks. And he's saying, don't do these things that you are considering. Don't go back. They want to go back to their homes. They want to go back to their society. Why do they want to do that? And he is trying to avert that, at least minimize it as much as possible. There's that word again. So that's the frame of reference. This is the this the book of the Hebrews six forty six is in this frame of reference. So is Hebrews ten twenty six through thirty one or nineteen through thirty one. Hebrews ten twenty six and twenty seven. For if we sin willful willful gosh, I'm running out of capability. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Okay, this passage is butchered. First, they don't have the context. What the context is, the frame of reference, is these Jewish Christians want to go back to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? Christ already gave us the inside scoop, if you will, to the apostles, what was going to happen to Jerusalem. So what is the judgment? But a certain fearful expectation of judgment. What is this judgment? Is this their loss of salvation, as the Armenians believe? What is the sin? He says, if we sin willfully, what is the sin that they're going to do? What, what is this? What are these Hebrew Christians wanting to commit? What sin is it? What is their deliberate intention? Again, it's clearly going back to works-based Judaism, rejecting the knowledge of the truth. What truth are they rejecting? They're rejecting Galatians three twenty uh, three two through nine, and Galatians three eleven through twelve, and Romans one sixteen and seventeen, Habakkuk two four, Hebrews ten thirty eight. They all say the same thing. What do they say? The just shall be saved by what? Faith, belief, grace. What's the opposite of that? Judaism. So that's the truth. The truth is you are either saved by works or saved by, I'm sorry, rejecting, willfully rejecting the knowledge of the truth. 
is your, the truth that's being referenced there is, is salvation by faith, by grace alone. The means of salvation and the sin then, let me say it this way, the sin is essentially embracing works as the means of salvation. That's what the sin, the willful sinning, the sin that they're about to commit. And that is a lie. The means of salvation is not works. It's never been works. It never will be works. It's contrary to the truth of grace and belief. Okay. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is enough. So you know what the sin is now. So are they losing their salvation? No, they're not losing their salvation. They're attempting to go back to their home. Hebrews 6.4.6 is another one of the five admonitions. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. So what are they falling away from? What is the whole point of the book of Hebrews? It's to stop as many as possible from going back to Jerusalem where there will be judgment there. What is the judgment? It is the destruction of Jerusalem and it is physical death. Is it in any way mentioning salvation? It is not. It has nothing to do. And here's the key phrase. If they fall away, to, to, it is impossible. Let me read it from the beginning. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. What is impossible? It's impossible to re-crucify Christ. There will not be multiple crucifixions. Why not? Why can't Christ re-crucify himself at will? Why would these Hebrew Christians be thinking these things? They thought obviously that they could set aside, they could cast aside their salvation and re-enter the works-based system and then they could be saved again. And does that sound familiar? That's classic Armenianism. The first Armenians were the Hebrew Christians. Exactly as today's Armenianism. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1.9. I've yet to discover a Calvinistic super-determinist or a he- Armenian super-Armenian or an Armenian position. I've never met any of them that correctly interprets Hebrews 10.26-31 and Hebrews 6.4-6. It's impossible for a man to be resaved, is what it's saying. It's impossible for you to be resaved. You can't lose your salvation. What will happen to you is you will go back to Jerusalem and you will be killed. And then when you're killed, then I lose a witness and I don't want to lose witnesses. If you guys know the truth and you're going to go back someplace, but you cannot be resaved. You're, you cannot lose your salvation. That's what Paul says. It's impossible for man to be resaved, for this requires the re-crucification of Jesus Christ. And that puts him to shame. Why does that put him to shame? They could go back, and some did, but their salvation is steadfast. The judgment is to the A.D. 70 destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? That is the beginning. 
We have a long way to go. I didn't want to leave anything out. 